Amen. Thank you, Allison and Jake and Emily. Uh, wonderfully done. We have been blessed with some wonderful music this morning, and our hearts are full from yesterday and already the music today. And I want to take just a little bit of time this morning in our service to look at Matthew chapter number 1 and see Emmanuel, God with us. Matthew chapter 1 and verses 18 through 23 is what we read just a few moments ago. But I want to draw our attention to verse 23 in fulfillment of a prophecy from Isaiah 7 and verse 14. We looked at this prophecy a few weeks ago in our Sunday school hour, our adult Bible study class. We saw a little bit of the context in which it was given. And we see in Matthew 1 and verse 23, Behold, a virgin shall be with child, and shall bring forth a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. It's an incredible thought. God with us. Prophesied in Isaiah 7 and verse 14, where there was a wicked king, King Ahaz, in God's mercy, he was told that he could ask for a sign as a matter of God's mercy and, and hope to bless Ahaz and to cause him to turn his heart from his wicked ways and, and turn to the Lord in repentance and faith and, and, and truly trust the Lord instead of these other armies, these other nations and his own military might and his own wealth. And Ahaz was told by Isaiah to ask for a sign. And Ahaz's response was in false humility. He refused the sign. And so God gave him a sign. And that sign is what is quoted here in Matthew 1 and verse 23 from Isaiah 7 and verse 14, where the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. This prophecy is of the virgin-born Messiah whose name would be Emmanuel, which means God with us. Any question regarding the meaning of the word translated virgin in Isaiah 7 and verse 14 is removed, as Matthew clearly, by the inspiration of God, the authority of God's word, uses the term virgin here in the New Testament. And throughout the first chapters of Luke and Matthew, it's clear that Jesus Christ was conceived by the Holy Spirit, virgin-born. And such an important doctrine, such an important teaching, upon which the holiness of our Savior, His deity, the inspiration, the authority of Scripture, so many doctrines are tied to the fact that Jesus Christ was virgin-conceived, virgin-born. Prophesied in Isaiah 7.14, fulfilled here in the New Testament as revealed in the Word of God in Matthew chapter 1 and Luke chapter number 2. But this relationship of God with us, you think about it, it it's virtually unheard of, it's virtually unknown among religions. That God would dwell with men? You think about the Greek mythologies and the Roman mythologies and the gods and the goddesses up in the sky and kind of fighting their own wars and having their own life and sometimes their reactions and actions will spill over onto planet earth and there's this idea that we have to go about trying to appease the gods and the goddesses. We have to find ways to 
make them work in our favor. And much of the spiritism in the world today is based on that idea that there are curses that are pronounced and we have to come up with the right way to say certain things to avoid the curse or to appease the, the spirits or the gods. Pantheistic, polytheistic religions claim that nature is God, that God is in the birds and the bees and the flowers and the trees, that God is kind of this impersonal force flowing in us and through us and around us, and we need to get on either the light side or the dark side. There's this idea of karma and this idea that karma is going to get you. Got to watch out because if you do certain things, there's this impersonal force, this karma that's going to come around and slap you in the face or something like that. There's this idea that, that God is just this, this, this genie in the sky. And we can manipulate him to grant us our wishes and our every desire. And it's up to us to figure out the way, even through maybe some religious means. And the prosperity gospel and the word faith movement is often based on this idea, as if God is just this big genie in the sky and we can manipulate him to get what we want. Whenever we want, however we want, we just need to get him to work in our favor. And then even around this time of the year and off and on you see this comic book kind of drawing sketch of God being some grandpa with a big white beard sitting in a rocking chair up in heaven. We may not quite think of him in that term or in those terms in that way, but that's kind of the idea that God is just some big grandpa up in the sky and he's just rocking Back and forth, and like a big grandpa, he's just waiting to hand out special favors, little candy gifts, and pat all his little grandchildren on the head because we're all the children of God. And there's nothing about repentance and faith, nothing about sin and getting right with God and living life the way God has revealed that we should live according to his word and according to his will. It's just this concept that we have invented from our own minds, our own sinful ideas about who God is and what God is and what God is like or should be like, and we are guilty of making God in our own image. Sadly, these views of God are far from reality and dangerously false and misleading. But the Bible gives us the right view of God. We know who God is because of the revelation of God's Word. And in the living Word, Jesus Christ, who came to die on the cross for our sins. So to understand this idea of God with us, let's go all the way back to Genesis chapter number 3. Genesis chapter number 3 in verse number 8. Genesis chapter number 3. We go all the way back to the early days of creation. Genesis chapter number 3. And we read here in verse number 8, And they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. Here we see God in the midst of the garden, in the cool of the day, coming to what appears to be a regular time of conversation 
of interchange with Adam and Eve in the garden, in a time of perfection, before sin, but then something is dreadfully wrong in Genesis 3 and verse number 8 because Adam and Eve are not where they normally meet to walk with God in the garden. Where are they? They are hiding. They have hid themselves from the presence of the Lord and amongst the trees. Why? Because of sin. They hid themselves after they sinned. So God called out to them. Of course, God, he is omniscient. He is omnipresent. They knew where they were, but he forces them to confess their sin, doesn't he? He brings them to the point where they have to face their sin and confess and admit to it. We see God with us in Genesis 3, with us in conviction, but also in mercy, in pardon, and in promise. Adam and Eve were brought to conviction, yes, about their sin, but they were also given a covering. They received a pardon, and they were promised a Redeemer. While they faced the reality of the consequences of their sin, that we, to one degree or another, still face today, because we're all sinners, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There's none righteous, no, not one. There is physical death. They immediately, upon their sin, began to die physically. They died immediately spiritually. And we're all dead in our sin, in our trespasses and sin. We're sinners by nature and by choice. Yes, there were consequences. Spiritual death immediately, physical death to come. Adam would now have toilsome labor. Can you imagine what it was like to work in the garden? You know, work was commanded before sin. So we're going to have celestial work. Those of us who know Christ as our Savior and will be with God in glory, we'll have celestial work. It'll be much better than the work that we have now. But imagine what Adam went through is now post-sin. His work in the garden was now toilsome with thorns and briars by the sweat of his brow. There'd be banishment from the garden. There'd be conflict in relationships. The desire of his wife, Eve, would be toward her husband. Speaking of the conflict that would come because of sin, don't we see, as I mentioned last week, don't we see the conflict in relationships, particularly in the home, in the family, as Satan tries to tear apart the fabric of our homes and our nation and our churches? We see these consequences, this conflict in relationships that would eventually even play out in their own home with the murder of their own son Abel by another son Cain catastrophic consequences of sin. And then, of course, there would be the internal struggle. Now having the flesh and having that sin nature and the internal struggle that we experience with sin. But God did not completely forsake man and leave him to die in an eternal hell, though he would have been completely just to do so. He could have left Adam and Eve on their own with no redemption plan, with no covering, with no pardon, with no atonement, and he would have been perfectly just and righteous and holy to do so. We think that we deserve so much. 
all this talk about justice and injustice and social justice, we deserve hell. When Adam and Eve sinned, we sinned in Adam and Eve. We deserve hell. But God did not leave Adam and Eve without a Savior, without a redemptive plan. He has not left us without a redemption plan. God had a plan of redemption before the foundation of the world, the New Testament speaks. He had this plan. When He created us, He knew that we would sin, yet He loved us. He had this redemption plan from eternity past knowing that it would even cost him his very own son, the Son of God, Jesus Christ. He would send his son, Jesus Christ, to make atonement for our sin. Yes, Genesis 3 and verse 15, the serpent would bruise his heel, but the Son of God, Jesus Christ, would crush the head of the serpent. Some of you were over at our house on Thursday and You wanted to crush the head of a serpent, but we did not allow that. There will, and there has been, the crush, the crushing blow on the head of the serpent, Satan. Death has lost its victory. As we read yesterday from 1 Corinthians 15, sin has been overcome by Jesus Christ, the blood of Jesus Christ. There was this redemption plan. Yes, the serpent would bruise the heel of the Son of God, But he would ultimately have the victory in crushing the head of the serpent, Satan. Because of our sin, our relationship with God is marred. It is broken. We as human beings, as made in the image of God, having dignity, have that image tainted by our sin. But again, we are reminded of God's redemption plan. God desires, though that relationship was fractured, it was broken by sin, what did God do? He provided a pardon, a sacrifice, those lamb skins for a covering, signifying and symbolizing the death of the Messiah one day, the shed blood of Jesus Christ, that there was an atonement for the sins of mankind as men would turn in repentance and faith to Jesus Christ. This is God's desire to have a right relationship with us. No other religion has this. Christianity is so much more than a religion. It's a relationship with Jesus Christ by faith. And it is God who desires to have this reconciled relationship. It is God who in Jesus Christ, who is doing the reconciling. We didn't seek after him. We love him because he first loved us. He is in Christ reconciling the world unto himself. He is seeking after us. Jesus said, if I be lifted up, I draw all men unto myself. And he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for our sins only, but also for the sins of the whole world. It's a universal call to all men everywhere to repent. God desires our repentance, to have a right relationship with us. There would be pre-incarnate appearances of Christ throughout the Old Testament. Sometimes those are referred to as the angel of the Lord. God would appear to various Old Testament saints. There would even be, at times, the audible or vision of God as he would reveal of 
God's word as he would reveal, give divine revelation as the prophets would speak, as they would write, and they would say, thus saith the Lord, the word of God spoke, the word of God spake unto me, and they delivered that message. But now we have the completed revelation of God's written word, Genesis through Revelation. We're not lacking anything, missing anything. We have the word of God. He has delivered, he has revealed himself in his word and in the person of Jesus Christ. And we can go all the way to Hebrews chapter number one. And we read in Verses 1 through 3 of Hebrews 1, God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. We're not to be looking for some sign, some vision, some wonder. We're to be looking at the person of Jesus Christ revealed in the word of God. So we see God with us. We go all the way back to the garden. We go back to the Old Testament. And then as we continue in our study through the Old Testament, we see God with us in Exodus chapter 13. Exodus chapter number 13. We go from the garden now into the wilderness as Israel, delivered from Egypt, enters into the wilderness and there is going to be a time where God will give the law to Moses in a very unique way. But we see God with us in Exodus 13 and verse 21, and the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of a cloud to lead them the way and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light to go by day and night. He took not away, he took not away the pillar of the cloud by day, nor the pillar of fire by night from before the people. We see God's presence in the Shekinah glory, can I say, the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire representing or being the very Shekinah glory of God, leading Israel. We see God with us. Exodus 14 and verse 19, And the angel of God, that's a Christophany, a pre-incarnate appearance of the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ. And the angel of God, which went before the camp of Israel, removed and went behind them, and the pillar of the cloud went from before their face and stood behind them. God with us, continuing to guide and to lead his people, his tender care and compassion for them. We continue in our understanding and our study of the Old Testament, and we see the tabernacle in the Ark of the Covenant. God with us. Exodus 29 and verse 42, This shall be a continual burnt offering throughout your generations at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation before the Lord, where I will meet you to speak there unto thee. God, the God of the universe, the creator God, desiring to meet with men and gives them Direct and very intimate and detailed plans of this tabernacle and what it should look like, including all of the furniture 
because God wanted to meet with men. We see this in the tabernacle again in Exodus 29 and verse 43. And there I will meet with the children of Israel in the tabernacle shall be sanctified by my glory. I have mentioned this before, but one of our uh, vacations, we went out to Lansdale, Pennsylvania. We went out to Gettysburg and we went to some place called the Hershey's Chocolate Factory and got some yummy chocolate and giant peanut butter cups that are just about as big as my head. Unbelievable. But we also went to uh, Mennonite um, run nonprofit, but it was a basically a scale size of the tabernacle with all of the furniture in, in scale. Incredible place. I mean, I know sight and sound theaters out there. There's Amish country and there's, I don't know what else around, but that, that Mennonite, I forget the name of that place, but it was a scale of the tabernacle. And I tell you, it was unbelievable. I mean, it brings tears to my eyes. Just thinking and just sitting there and watching as that tour guide, for lack of a better word, went through each piece of the furniture. And there was an inner city group that was there. These kids, they, they, I felt bad because they, they really had no idea. They were on a field trip. But they were, get, they were getting the gospel and they were getting all the symbolism and all the prophecy and all the, 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 the future looking to the, the Messiah. And she went into the Holy of Holies. Of course, this was just a scale. This was uh, not... Uh, obviously in any kind of irreverent way or sacrilegious way, but she went into the Holy of Holies and she began to explain the Ark of the Covenant and she delivered the gospel, this tour guide did. And I had a lump in my throat and tears in my eyes as I listened to her tell of the glories of Jesus Christ that God desired to meet with his people. And I sat there and I thought, as a believer, having trusted Christ as my Savior, as a child, I have... God with us in the person of the Holy Spirit indwelling me. And I looked at all the detail and I saw all the symbolism and the beauty and so much that day and it was a rebuke and conviction to me. It is the temple of God. How do I live? How do I worship? What does my worship look like? How much time and chapters and effort that God in delivering the details of the tabernacle and the temple and the glories of them because God desires to meet with us and we must meet with him on his terms according to his way. Exodus 25 and verse 21, And thou shalt put the mercy seat above the ark, and in the ark shalt thou put the testimony that I shall give thee, and there I will meet with thee, and I will commune with thee from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubims which are upon the ark of the testimony of all things which I will give thee in commandment unto the children of Israel. Wow. God's desire as he meets with Israel and the presence of God in a visible way manifested in the Shekinah glory at the Ark of the Covenant. Now this is not Indiana Jones' Ark of the Covenant. This is not Raiders of the Lost Ark. 
Ark of the Covenant. A very, I know it's an entertainment movie, but a very sad and unrealistic and inaccurate representation of the Ark of the Covenant, can I add. But the Ark of the Covenant, they were only allowed to go into the Holy of Holies once a year on the Day of Atonement. Specific way in which the high priest could enter in with the blood, and if there was any blemish, that high priest would be struck dead and would be pulled out with a rope. There were even bells on the hem of his garment for if he went in and there was any blemish, any sin, anything that was not done according to the commandment of the Lord in respect to his holiness, that high priest would be struck dead in the Holy of Holies. They would hear those bells crash and they knew they had to pull him out with a rope. To the point that even when David, has, as the Philistines had stolen the Ark of the Covenant, and isn't it interesting that the Ark of the Covenant goes into the Philistines' temple and Dagon's head and arms, and I think it all were falling off, and Dagon was falling down before the Ark. And sadly, David had the Ark transported in a cart, and Uzziah reached out, or Uzzah, excuse me, Uzzah reached out and touched the ark, and God struck him dead. Because he had violated a clear command regarding how to handle the ark. So we see God with us in the tabernacle. We see God with us in the temple. I wish we had time to go to 1 Kings chapter number 8. It is incredible to read 1 Kings chapter 8. I think it would do us all so much good to take some time I wish we had time right now to read through chapter 8 of 1 Kings. It is a long, long chapter. 66 verses. But 1 Kings chapter 8 should put us on our knees before a holy God. As Solomon dedicated the temple and prayed an incredible prayer in respect to the holiness and the awesomeness of our God who desired to meet with His people. And the temple was a central part, a central location for their worship. The tabernacle, and now the temple. And that temple, I showed a slide maybe a couple of Wednesday nights ago and showed the, the seven temples recorded in Scripture. We've been taking time on Wednesday nights looking at Haggai and Zechariah, and as the exiles came back from the land of Babylon, and now they are rebuilding Jerusalem and begin to build their houses and they begin to build the temple. And then for 16 years, the temple sits because there was opposition. And Haggai and Zechariah came and preached and said, get your spiritual priorities right. Get back to building the temple. And they rebuilt that temple. Herod would later add to it, but that temple that was rebuilt in Haggai and Zechariah, that temple was the temple that the Messiah, Jesus Christ, would walk in. That eventually would be destroyed in A.D. 70 when the Romans came and conquered Jerusalem. But we know that when Jesus Christ died on the cross, what happened to that veil in the temple? It was rent in two. Now, in the New Covenant, we see the fulfillment of all that symbolism. We see the fulfillment of all of that atonement for the sins of mankind fulfilled in Jesus Christ. 
So we see the tabernacle, we see the temple, and that brings us to God with us in the person of Jesus Christ, the God-man, incarnate God, the Son of God. John 1 and verse 14, And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. We were in Hebrews chapter number 1. I go back again to Hebrews Chapter number one, and look at these verses again. Hath in these last days God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds, who, being the brightness of his glory, the express image of his person, upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. We see God with us. Emmanuel, fulfilled in Luke 2, Matthew 1, and the birth of Jesus Christ in Bethlehem, fulfillment of the prophecy of Isaiah 7 in verse 14. But we see Emmanuel, God with us, in the person of Jesus Christ, God incarnate, walking on this earth, ministering as a servant with people like you and me. We get tired of each other sometimes, sadly. We have conflict in our homes. We have people that we don't even like to see, much less be around, sadly, sometimes. We're so put off by certain people. There are people around us that have the personality of a Brillo pad. They're like steel wool. They're, they're tough. They're rough to get her. But we're called to love people. We're not going to take our cars and our houses and our money in our retirement funds and our pensions to heaven. It's going to be people. We had a memorial service yesterday for a man who invested his life in people. One of the things that stood out to me throughout the service was he was a man who loved his family. He invested in the most important people that God had called him to, his wife and his children. And then from there and beyond, he touched so many lives. Somebody said to me between Sunday school and the morning service, the world would be a much better place if we had more Jerry Victors. Amen to that. Who's going to take the place of a Jerry Victor on this platform and playing a trombone or a saxophone or serving in the way that Jerry did? Who's going to be that young man who's going to be like a Jerry Victor and love his wife and his kids the way he did? But Jerry Victor was only as good as he was because he had a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, whom he loved. He knew God with us because he had trusted Christ as his Savior. The Holy Spirit indwelled him, and God desires to have that kind of relationship with each and every one of us. He desires to be Emmanuel, God with us. Philippians 2 and verse number 6, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient even unto the death of the cross. He went to the cross for sinners like you and me. And then wherefore... God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. That at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. 
we see God with us in the person of Jesus Christ who came and died on the cross for us lowly sinners. And then he made a promise in John 14. As the disciples have been hearing Christ talk of his death, burial, and resurrection, he has been preparing them for this. And he reminds them in John 14, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you I go to prepare a place for you. They hear him talking. They know he's going to go away. Thomas even asks, Lord, we know not whither thou goest, and how can we know the way? Well, let's jump ahead in John 14 to verse 16. And I will pray the Father, Jesus comforting the hearts of his disciples. And I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter, that he may abide with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him, but ye know him, for he dwelleth with you and shall be in you. I will not leave you comfortless, I will come to you. Who is he speaking of? The Holy Spirit. The third person of the Trinity. Holy Spirit is a person. He is God, just as equal to God, as God, as God the Father and God the Son. We don't have a polytheistic God. We have one God in three persons. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Jesus Christ is saying God with us in the person of the Holy Spirit. He says, I will not leave you comfortless. Hebrews 13, in verse number 5, in some instruction about contentment and covetousness, we read in Hebrews 13, in verse number 5, Let your conversation be without covetousness, and be content with such things as ye have. For he hath said, I will never leave thee, nor forsake thee. God with us continues in the person of the Holy Spirit. What we read in 1 Corinthians 3 and verse 16, Know ye not that ye are the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you? If any man defile the temple of God, him shall God destroy. For the temple of God is holy, which temple ye are. We can make many applications about that. But we have the Holy Spirit dwelling within us, making us the temple of God. It has applications. Yes, about the physical body, but also about the spiritual 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 19, what? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are not your own? 2 Corinthians 6 and verse 16, and what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. What does that say about our lives and how we should live? And how we use our bodies and what we put in our bodies. And how we use our body, body, soul, and spirit as the temple of God. How do we live? Are we living in obedience? Are we using our temples for the glory of God? Ephesians 2 and verse 21. In whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto an holy temple in the Lord. What is that speaking of? The church. What does that say about our church? How do we exercise ourselves in the spiritual gifts that God has given us in edifying one another as the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth, referenced even as the temple of God? There are so many applications we can make. But it's a reminder, again, that God is with us. 
And then we look ahead into the millennial temple. We don't have time to turn to Ezekiel 40, Zechariah 6, and Revelation 20, where there is reference to the millennial temple, where once again there will be a physical place on earth. Right now we see that in the church. There will be a physical central location in the millennium, in the thousand-year reign of Christ, as he has come again in his second coming, which we know, first of all, the first part of that is the rapture of the church, dead in Christ, and those who are alive in him, caught up together, the rapture. After the tribulation, the millennial kingdom, there will be a temple, a central place, where God once again will manifest his presence. And in Revelation 11 and verse 19, And the temple of God was opened in heaven, and there was seen in his temple the ark of his testament, and there were lightnings and voices and thunderings, and an earthquake and great hail. The heavenly most holy place is what is described there in Revelation 11 and verse 19, which is actually a reference even to the future uh, temple, the temple of God that's opened in heaven. But the millennial temple is described in detail in Ezekiel 40, Zechariah 6, and Revelation 20. And that temple I just described, or it was just described in Revelation 11, the heavenly most holy place, is further described in Revelation 21 and verse 3, where we see God with us in heaven. The Holy Spirit, we have Christ, God incarnate, the Holy Spirit. We have God's presence at the millennial kingdom in the person of Jesus Christ, who rules and reigns with a rod of iron on the throne of David in Jerusalem. In the millennial temple, and then the forecast, as we just read in Revelation 11, and now to Revelation 21, the heavenly temple that's described in Revelation 21 and verse 3. God with us again. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God. There will no longer be a physical temple. There will no longer be a central place of physical proportions like a physical temple. In heaven, God with us will be the very presence of God himself, but what will be absent? Sin. There will be no more sorrow, no more crying. The curse will have been completely removed. We will have received our final glorified bodies and our glorified states. And we, having been saved from the penalty of sin and the power of sin, will now finally in our glorified state be saved from the very presence of sin. And there we are reminded that the tabernacle of God is with men and he will dwell with them and they shall be his people and God himself shall be with them. And be their God. For all eternity. So where are we at today as we consider Emmanuel, God, with us? Do you know Christ as your Savior? Do you have the Holy Spirit indwelling you today because you have turned from your sin and called out to God in confession of your sin and repentance of your sin and placed your faith in Jesus Christ who made atonement for your sins and my sins on the cross, who shed his blood? Have you placed your faith and trust in Christ and his finished work on the cross and his resurrection? If you have not, won't today be the day of your salvation that you can know without a shadow of doubt that God is with you in the person of the Holy Spirit, Jesus Christ, God the Father, the Trinity, all three persons in one God, the essence, in God's one essence, 
God the Father, God the Son, God the Father who planned the redemption plan, who was sovereign God, God the Son, Jesus Christ who fulfilled the redemption plan, and God the Holy Spirit who now indwells us. And it's the earnest, the down payment, the promise that looks ahead to the future full fulfillment. When in heaven, God will tabernacle with men without sin. And the penalty, the power, and the presence of sin will be completely overcome by Jesus Christ. And we will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Do you know him today? As believers, this Christmas season, won't we once again bow in humble adoration? Yes, a little baby in a manger in Bethlehem, but the God of all the universe who desires to dwell with us and made a plan, reconciled us to himself, and one day as a blood-bought child of God will dwell with him forever, forevermore. Let's pray. Lord, what tremendous promises. Lord, we're so unworthy of your great goodness and your mercy. The God of all the universe, who though we sinned against you in rebellion, you have redeemed us unto yourself, reconciled us, not by our works, not by us trying and doing our very best with sincerity, but only by your grace. Lord, I pray if there's someone today who has not come to you through Christ alone, by grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone, may today be the day in which they turn from their sin and turn to you in saving faith and truly know God with us. As the Holy Spirit comes and indwells them, places them in Christ, baptizes them into Christ, clothed in his righteousness, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Lord, as believers, I pray that you will help us to once again be renewed in our gratitude and our appreciation, our thanksgiving, and be renewed in our desire to love you, serve you, and to be obedient and to live for you. As we reflect upon the greatness and the goodness of who you are in sending your son, Jesus Christ, Emmanuel, God with us. We pray that you will do your work in our hearts as we sing in Jesus' name.